as we get started, uh, we had our Good News Club meeting last Wednesday, and the elephant in the room every year is how are we going to handle discipline? How are we going to handle discipline? And the reason I say it's an elephant in the room is uh, we are a club, an after-school club, and we want to do the best we can to love the kids and to encourage the kids, but they also need to learn. Uh, we need it to be an educational setting and not a chaotic mess. Amen? Uh, but at the same time, you don't want to be so hard on them that they never get to hear the gospel. And so there's this hard balance of, you know, how much positive reinforcement do we do and how much punishment do we have? And, and that's really how all discipline works. There's positive reinforcement and there's punishment. Or as Calvin Haynes would say, there's the carrot or the stick. And that saying actually comes out of the 19th century. A cartoonist uh, wrote a cartoon about two men riding donkeys in a race. And one used a whip or a stick to motivate his donkey. And the other one used the stick with a carrot uh, attached to the front of it, dangling it in front of the donkey. And the one that dangled the carrot in front of the donkey won the race. And that saying has been in human culture ever since. You'll hear in politics, uh, thing about foreign relations or foreign affairs. Is it the carrot or the stick that we need to use? Well, as I was preparing Romans 5, I quickly realized that Paul has sat down his theological stick, and Paul has picked up his theological carrot. Or as Pastor Calvin would say, we're leaving the state of Kansas, the location where Paul beat us down with a theological stick for four chapters, telling us how unworthy we were of the gospel, how unworthy we were of God, how wretched we were, how unrighteous we live, how wretched of sinners we are. There's no one righteous, not even one. All of you deserve the wrath of God. We had that for about 13 sermons. For some reason, I preached 11 of those 13, where we just beat you down saying you do not deserve the gospel. Then you turn to chapter 5, which magically is what Pastor Calvin got on his rotation, and he gets the carrot last week of saying what? Believe in Jesus, and I can promise you peace with God. And all the church says what? Amen. And believe in Jesus, and I can promise you grace where you will stand in the acceptance of God, and all the church says, Amen. And everyone says, He should be our pastor. Enough of the state of Kansas. We need the carrots. And there is some of that when you get to Romans 5. It's my joy today to continue this explanation of the joy of justification. Yes, we're unworthy, but He was still willing. Yes, we were wretched, but He is still just. And he sent his son to die for us so that we could be forgiven and adopted in. And part of that then came with peace and grace and hope. And today I get to talk more on hope today. Pastor Calvin had a tricky choice last week. He had verses 1 to 5 or 6. You can't really separate 1 from 11, but 1 and 11 is such a big section it's hard to cover it all. So Today we're going to jump back into Calvin's sermon. We're going to jump back in probably around verse 5. And we're going to continue to ask the question, what makes biblical or godly hope so secure and good? Why is it so appealing to have godly hope or biblical hope? What makes it so appealing to everyone? We're also going to see this morning... Why does Paul, or what does Paul always connect Jesus to? I probably said that really horribly there. Why does Paul always connect our hope back to Jesus? And it's important that we learn that this morning. That our security in the future, our expectation in the future, is really grounded in the evidence of the past. 
God has made evident how he feels about us. God has made evident what he's willing to do for us. So the evidence of what God has done is what motivates my expectation as what is to come. Does that make sense? And we're going to look at that through the eyes of godly hope and in Jesus Christ. If I do my job well this morning, we're going to see that Christian hope, and you'll notice on your bulletin there's a comma because I want to define what Christian hope is. It is confident eternal expectation is rooted in God's love and Jesus' accomplishments. Christian hope, when you hear the word hope in a Christian setting, what we mean by that is we are confident about our eternal expectations, and that is rooted in God's love and, the, and what Jesus accomplished. Let's jump right into our first point, verses, we're actually going to do verse 5, and I want to show you that Christians have non-disappointing hope because God is and has demonstrated his love for believers. Notice what I said, non-disappointing. If you look at verse 5 in the Bible, it says, This hope will not disappoint us. Now, my challenge this morning is Paul says, this hope. Meaning that he's already been talking about some kind of hope, which Pastor Calvin talked about last week. And Pastor Calvin started this conversation in verse 2b. When we say 2b, it means the second half of verse 2. And Pastor Calvin in the second half of verse 2 said, We've attained access through him by faith and the grace in which we stand. Now, second half. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And that was defined last week as we rejoice in the confidence we have that one day God will transform us or glorify us to look and act and be like he is. We see this in Romans 8. Those he calls, he justifies. Those he justifies, he sanctifies. Those he sanctifies, he also will glorify. If I got that chain wrong, we all get the point. That glorification is a promise. Once the work starts in your life, then the promise of glory is a guarantee. Once you start experiencing the change of God in your life, he has already called you and justified you, then we have hope that he will also glorify us. I will not have this wretched sinful body in heaven. I will not have the temptations I have in heaven. I will not have the limitations of, in terms of a decaying body that I have here. That's what we mean by the glory of God. That while we fall short now, later we will be granted. And I want to look at three strengthening things about godly hope. And I have to start in verses 3 and 4 because I want to get all three of these. There's three E words of why I have such a strong confidence in the hope of God. There's three reasons why we should be confident this morning that God will do as God has said. And Calvin hit on one of them last week, so I don't have to do a lot of work, but I do want to hit it. The first reason why I am confident that God will do as God has promised is I have experienced God's dependability and his workings already in my life. I mean, that's what verses 3 and 4 say. And not only that, but we rejoice in our afflictions. See verse 3? Because we know that affliction produces endurance, and endurance produces proven character, and proven character produces what? Hope. So hope is the product of experiencing God's presence and God's willingness and God's capabilities right now. As you go through afflictions, as you suffer, and God is there, and he's giving you endurance, and he's changing your character, when you experience in the presence of God now, it gives you a lot more hope that later on, when you die, or later on, when you stand before him, you'll still have the presence of what with you? God. We experience it now. 
I don't have to wait till eternity to understand that God can work in my life. God is working now. That's what the Bible says. Now notice the, the fruit of his working, though. And Jeff did not know he was going to make my sermon. What did Jeff say? A lot of people get through tough things, amen? But not everyone is a Christian. The difference between the way Christians get through tough things and the way worldly, th- worldly people do is Christians come out of tough times with a changed character. You can go through, I meet people all the time that have been through worse things than I am, that I have been through, but yet they're not a better person because of it. They survived, but they did not thrive. They kept their head above water, but they didn't learn how to swim any better. All they did was just get through it. But when you're a person of God, you don't ask God, God, why, 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 why did you let this happen? No, you ask God, what are you teaching me? What do you want me to learn? What do you want me to learn about my dad getting sick and passing away? What do you want me to learn about Jennifer getting hit by a drunk driver before we got engaged? What do you want me to learn about I may not be preaching a sermon next week at this church. I'm really anxious 13 years ago. What do you want me to learn? Not why. Things are going to happen to you. The answer to why is real easy. God has his reasons. But what do you want me to learn? That's the difference between worldly affliction and Christian affliction. In Christian affliction, we are asking God, what do you want to do in me and through me in this circumstance? And when you answer that, and through humility, he gives you joy or patience or compassion, all of a sudden he's giving you a changed character. And when he changes your character, you're like, God is real. He took this wretched old boy who used to steal beef jerky sticks because of pride, and he's made me a righteous husband and father. And yeah, he did it through affliction, and a lot of people suffer, but not everyone suffers and asks the question, God, what do you want me to learn? And so through proven character, a proven character produces H-O-P-E. It produces hope. One of the reasons Christians have such a strong hope in God is because we experience his dependability and his workings already in our life. The second thing we're going to see why we have such a strong hope as Christians is that we experience or we have an emotional encounter with his love. Look at verse 5. This hope will not disappoint, the hope that comes from God working in your life, because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. What has God done? Everyone, right now we're looking at the benefits. So what got us these benefits? Chapters 3 and 4. By faith I accepted Jesus Christ as my substitution, as my atonement. By faith God redeemed me. By faith I was justified. By faith I was reconciled. And in return of me putting my faith in God, God has done something in my heart. He has poured out his, his what? His spirit which in, in this context, verse 5, what's the ministry of the Spirit specifically? This hope will not disappoint because God's what has been poured out in our hearts? His what? His love. The minute someone is converted is the minute the Spirit brings a message to their heart. You know what that message is? You are a child of God the Father and He loves you. 
It's an emotional thing. Listen, Pastor Calvin's little theological hairs are standing up on his neck as I say this. There is a subjective emotional encounter with God that, that confirms you are saved and confirms that, he is places that you have hope in him. There is an emotional encounter with God when you are saved. And that emotional encounter is his spirit comes into your heart and he pours what into it? He pours the love of God into it. And you're like, well, that sounds so mystical. Well, go to Romans. You don't have to turn that. Romans 8, it says that the Spirit comes into our heart and helps us to cry out what? We cry out. I'll just read it for you. For all those who are led by God's Spirit are God's sons. For who did not receive a spirit of a slavery to fall back into fear? Instead, you believer, have received the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry out, Abba and Father. The Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we truly are God's children. And if we are children, we're also heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Indeed, we suffered with him so that we might also be glorified with him. You know, one of the jobs of the Holy Spirit when he shows up in your life is to say, you are a child of God. And if you're a parent in this room, you understand what that means. Fathers love their children. There's a joke that fathers will fight with their sons and they'll kill for their daughters. Parents love their children. There is not a greater metaphor in the world. Well, maybe husband, wife, but even father. The, the sense of like, parents just, they would give anything for their children. And that is the love God has for you. So when you think about your future, well, what's going to happen to me at judgment time? Am I going to experience God's wrath? Am I always, listen. The future is in the hands of a father that what? That loves you. That's why we have confidence as Christians. We experience his dependability. He gets me through circumstances now. He's changing my life already. And if he can change me now, he can change me later. And not only does he want to change me, he also loves me. He has poured out his spirit. Titus 3, 7. He poured out his spirit on us abundantly through Jesus our Savior. So that having been justified by his grace, we may become heirs with the hope of eternal life. Folks, today the spirit in your heart is testifying God loves you. And that should give you peace and hope about what is to come. So we've had experiencing his dependability and his changing of our lives. We've had the fact that he loves us. And my third E, and now we're verses 6 through 8, is that we have evidence in the past. We have historical evidence that God truly does love us. Look at verses 6 through 8. As we continue, we're looking at hope. We have hope because he changes us. We have hope because he loves us. And we have hope because of what he's done for us. Verses 6 through 8. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will someone die for a just person. Though for a good person, perhaps someone might even dare to die. But God proves his own love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's, it's very important we look at verses 6 and 8 first. And in 6 and 8, you're going to see the unworthiness of us, the cost that God gave, and the magnitude of his love. Look, what, look at how unworthy we were for what God did for us in the past. While we were still what, church? Verse 6. We were still... Yeah, we were still helpless. Oh, sorry, did I say six? Six, we were still helpless. And then you look at the very end of six, for Christ died for the what kind of people? For the ungodly. Then you go down to verse eight. So we're, we were helpless, we were ungodly. And then verse eight, while we were still sinners. 
It's very important for us to understand the unworthiness we had when God demonstrated his love for us. If you look down at verse 10, he even calls us enemies. For if while we were enemies, we were enemies of God. So one of the reasons I have hope is, look what he did for me when I really didn't deserve it. I was helpless. I was a sinner. I was ungodly. I was an enemy. Yet, look what he did for us. Look, what, what, look at the cost he did. In verse 6, Christ died. He couldn't die unless he was sent. A father sent his only begotten. Verse 8, God proved his own love for that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Folks, justification may be free for you, but it was extremely costly for the Father. You were helpless, you were ungodly, you were a sinner, you were an enemy, yet God the Father, out of his love, decided to send his Son, not just send his Son, but send his Son to die, not just die, but die a criminal's death, in order for you to be saved. See, the historical evidence of God's love for you is great. You are completely unworthy. I'm back to the state of Kansas now. You are completely unworthy, yet God still loved us. What's going to happen in the future? We'll still probably be completely unworthy, but God will still love us. And then you see the magnitude of it. Look at verse 7. Verse 7. Paul compares what God did in the past to just our human nature. Look at how humans would love. For rarely will someone die for a just person. Rarely would someone give their life for a righteous person, someone who's living good. Rarely would you die for someone that just lives a good life. That's just humans. We, we don't think like that. We're not sacrificial. Though, for a good person, perhaps, someone might even dare to die. And I take a good person to be someone that you have affections with. So I think he says, though, though for a person that you're close to, a family member, a, com a combat buddy, you know, someone you go to war with, or maybe even just a good cause. It, it's hard for humans to die for a good person, and, and it's, it's, it's a little easier to die for someone you love or someone who has a just cause, but even then, it's still near to impossible that you actually will. Human nature is far below God's selfless love that he has for us. I mean, right now in this room, not many of you would give your kidney for someone that's not in your family. I just think that's the reality of it. Now, you might give your kidney for Pastor Jacob, because I'm your pastor. But still, there would be some of you that would say, what? God only gave me how many? Two. And if I give you one, then I only have how many left? And if I only have one left, and it goes bad, sayonara. And that's how we think as humans. Listen, I, I think that's just a normal thing. It's very hard for us to put ourselves at risk for the benefit of others. But you think about God, he put himself at risk and actually followed through with it for people who didn't even deserve it. Why do I have confidence in the future? Because of the God I read about in the past. The evidence of the past gives me complete good expectations for the future. Because the Bible says over and over, God is the same today as he was yesterday. And notice also, who's initiating all of this stuff? God is. You were helpless, you were a sinner, you were ungodly, and you were an enemy. I don't think any of those four characteristics 
are, are saying that you made any kind of choice or any kind of step towards God. You were completely walking away from God when God decided to send his son for you. So then you go back up to verse 5. Now we're going to really understand these three words. This, or not three words, six words. This hope will not disappoint us. If God's changing your life, he's going to change you to glory later. If God loves you today, he's going to love you in the end. And if God was willing to pay that price in the past, he's willing to pay the price necessary in the future. Christian hope will not disappoint you. I think back of when I married Jennifer. I stood at the altar waiting for her to come down the aisle. And I'm a very logical man, so I'm sitting there crunching the probability of, is she going to actually walk down this aisle? I had emotional support. We were in love. Amen, Jennifer. Thank you. We were emotionally connected. Amen. Thank you. There were experiential moments in our past. We had flirted at work. We had held hands. We were there for one another in tough times. We had actually planned a wedding together. And all I kept telling myself, there wasn't a gun to her head when she said, I do. Or, no, I do. Yes to marrying me. There was also the historical evidence. We had never broke up. We had dated for over two years. We had went through all the processes. So as I stood there at the altar waiting for Jennifer to come down, I had emotional, experiential, and historical evidence that told me, I think I'm going to be okay. And folks, if I had confidence in a human to remain constant and to honor her word and to follow through on her promises, how much more should we have confidence in God? No offense, in God. And I think some of you in here struggle to trust God more than you trust your spouse. And I would challenge you today, the trust you have in God, the trust you have in this man we just saying, Yahweh, Yahweh, today and forever, should be, should be unmeasurable compared to the trust you have in a spouse. I have four simple statements before I move to my next point. He has worked, so he will work. He has been able to change you, so he will be able to change you. He has loved you, so he will love you. And he has shown it, and he will show it again. Our second point today is that Christians have a confident hope because of the historical evidence that leads to hopeful expectation. I know that sounds very similar, and Paul is very similar in his argumentation here. But as we go on to verse 9, his confidence continues to grow. Now Paul's going to do something in these verses. It's a rhetorical strategy. That just means he has a, a plan in mind on how he wants to say this. And Paul's going to use a strategy that we call light to heavy or less to great or minor to major. And you can switch those around. But the idea is if God did this, then God can do this. And we saw this with Abraham. If God is the creator of life and God can call things into existence that have never existed before, okay, then God can give Abraham a baby. He can resurrect the womb of, of, of Sarah. So we've already seen this kind of argumentation. If God is this, and he, he, he did this in the beginning, he was creator, then he can do this. I'll use Adam Lee as an example. I warned him. Adam Lee delivered his own sister at age 12. Okay? At age 12, Adam Lee helped his mother, delivered his baby sister. Okay? So if Adam Lee can deliver his sister at age 12, I bet he could take care of my children with a strep throat at age 26. Amen? 
It would be insulting me to be like, Adam, I really need someone to sit with Eli for a couple days. I don't think you're capable of taking care of my son with strep. Adam's first thing back with me is, I delivered my own sister at 12. That's the reasoning that, that Paul's going to use. So just, I just want to forewarn you, you're looking for a major premise. If God's done this, then he will do this. Let's look at verse 9. And the connecting tissue will be how much more. So Paul starts with this connecting tissue in verse 9. How much more then, okay, now let's go back to what he's already done. Since we've now been declared righteous by his blood, God's already made you righteous, Christian. He's already done that. How much more will we be saved through Jesus from wrath? So let's just break down. What's the major, the major statement is what? God has declared unrighteous people having a good standing before him. Uh, the word to be declared righteous is to be declared just or innocent or acquitted, be given a good standing before a judge. If God has declared you innocent, God has declared you approved by him, you have a good standing with God. If he's already done that through the death of Jesus, how much more will he also deliver you from his wrath that is to come? Because whether we want to admit it or not, God is going to judge this world. And there is going to be wrath that is necessary. All of the rebellion and all of the ungodliness and all of the mocking of God and all of the uh, uh, putting down of God, all of that will be held accountable. God is going to hold the world accountable for how they've treated him. And part of his response is going to be wrath. It's going to be, it's going to be him responding to their rebellion by punishing them and by... Uh, by uh, by laying his, his just authority upon their lives and the punishments that are then deemed appropriate because of that. And so as a Christian, you may be sitting here saying, well, I'm worried that I may be in that wrath one day. And Paul is saying, look, if he's already declared you good with him today, listen, he's already said that Jesus' blood has washed you clean and that you're in a good standing. How much more is he then going to make sure that you are delivered from his wrath? Because wrath is only given to people who deserve it. That's what makes him a just God. So if you're already right with God, and you're already innocent in his eyes, then what worries do you have about the wrath that is to come? That's why Christian hope is so confident. Because I'm already good with God. So yeah, his wrath is coming, folks. His wrath is coming upon thousands of, hundreds of thousands of years, uh, thousands of years of history. He is going to hold the world accountable. But I won't be part of that because my sins have been paid for by Jesus Christ. And that's what the Bible says here, is it not? He has deemed you righteous, not by works, not by circumcision, not by religious heritage, but by Jesus' what? Blood. He does the same thing in verse 10. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, so there's your, your first statement, if God's already reconciled you, then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by Jesus' life? Now he switched it here. In verse 9 it was declared righteous, that's a legal term. In verse 10 he has switched it and now it's what? Reconciled. That's a word for relational uh, status, okay? Me and Calvin can be friends, me and Calvin fight, we now need to be what? Reconciled. We go from being two parties that are together to two hostile parties, okay? I would use my wife, but we never fight. Amen? Thank you. All right? So Calvin and I go from friends to hostiles. But then what do we do? We forgive each other and we are 
reconciled. We're no longer talking about legal, legal like you're innocent. Paul switched his metaphor now. If God has reconciled you, if he has brought you back to him, if he has adopted you, if he has taken you as his child and he is your father, if he's done that, then all you have waiting for you is to be delivered through the life of Jesus. Now, this delivering through a life is a little trickier. I, I think what he's talking about is this. When Jesus died, he was resurrected. Acts 17 says that by his resurrection, God has appointed Jesus the judge of the world. Okay? So, you know who the judge is that's going to judge the world? It's Jesus. He's been appointed by resurrection. All right? But also in Romans 8, one of Pastor Calvin's favorite passages, is that Jesus, when he got to the right hand of the Father, he is and he will, and always, he always will, intercede on our behalf. So the judge already has a bias for you. A good bias. And it says, who can bring a claim against God's chosen or God's elect? Who can say you're guilty if the judge already has good favor with you? If you have favor and fellowship and, and, and forgiveness from the judge, then you don't worry about the court. Amen? You are reconciled. You're in good favor with God. All right? And so if we're reconciled, then one day when we stand in court, we are going to be delivered through the intercessor. His name is Jesus Christ. That's what I think it means by his life. I think it means in Romans 8. Not only that, but we ourselves have the spirit as first fruits. We groan within ourselves eagerly at waiting for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. He's arguing this in Romans 8. Skip down to verse 30. Those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he glorified. Verse 33. Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more, he has been raised. He is at the right hand of God, and he intercedes for us. Folks, the reason I have confidence about the day I stand in the courtroom of God is because I have been reconciled with God. And by his life, by his resurrected status, he is going to intercede for me. Now you're probably saying, man, I'd love for you to put these two metaphors together, how he's the judge and he's in I can't do that. Paul in verse 10 switches metaphors. He just says this, that you've been reconciled with God and that in his resurrected life, he is going to what? Deliver you. And I take that to be that he will intercede for me. He will speak to my good status before judgment. So before I get to my third and final point, my application would be this. I think every human wrestles with three topics, folks. They wrestle with the sin and brokenness of the world. I think every one of us in here struggles with the judgment that is to come. Even as a Christian, you still understand you don't live perfectly. And I think every human ever that has ever existed struggles with death. And when you look at Christian hope, based on what we've studied today, I think that's the answer to all three of these human struggles or anxieties we carry. Because when you talk about sin and brokenness, here's a question I think we all wrestle with. Will I always have to live like this? Will I always have these defects? Will I always have these temptations? Will I always have to live in this broken world? Will I always have to worry about my kids getting kidnapped by some weirdo down the street? Will I always have to live like this? Am I always going to be in a world like this? Well, Christian Hope would say, no. You are going to be delivered. You are going to be saved in what is to come by Jesus Christ. If he's already saved you, if he's already declared you righteous now, he's going to deliver you later. He is going to take us out of this world, and he's going to put us in a perfect world where there is no crying, there is no cancer, there is no sin. 
So the anxiety of, I'm tired of living in this world, is that Christians know this is not our final resting place. This is not eternity. My hope is in an eternity that is to come without this brokenness. Also, some of you may struggle with, why do I love the things that I'm supposed to hate? Here I am a Christian. I'm supposed to hate sin and love light. I'm supposed to love godliness and hate unrighteousness. Yet my flesh still craves things that I don't want to crave. Well, one day, folks, in my Christian hope, you are going to be glorified and you won't have that problem anymore. Judgment. Think about the word judgment, all the thoughts that run through our head. How long will evil preserve, uh, persevere? Will I be part of God's wrath? Who will stand with me at the judgment seat of God? Where do I even stand with God? Where do I stand with my creator? How does he view me and where's my destination going to be? Well, with Christian hope, the fruit of justification, if he's already adopted me and I'm already his child and I've already been forgiven, then my, my transition to eternity is a coming home, not ascending away. And the third one is death. If you've never thought about death, you just haven't lived long enough. What happens when I die? Is this the only life? And is this everything? Well, God tells his people, if I'm already changing your character, and I already love you, and you've seen what I've done in the past, then no believer, this is not the end. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come and take you so you may be with me too. For in my Father's house are many rooms. See, I'm going home. Death is a transition, not an ending. Or as we say at a lot of funerals, death is a comma, not a period. That's what makes Christian hope so, re so rewarding, is that we have a life past death, we have a path through judgment, and we have a solution to sin. My last point, and don't get nervous, folks, I know it, it's been 13 years, I know I have to hit my time the best I can, is my third one is Paul just ends this whole argument that he started with Pastor Calvin and he's continued with me. Look at verse 11. There's not a lot to explain here in verse 11. It's pretty straightforward. And not only that, not only do we have this hope, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. What Paul is saying is we have so much more to boast about. Not just boasting in our peace with God, not just boasting about our grace with God, not just boasting about our hope with God. We boast in God above all. The person behind the promises receives the greatest praise. Yeah, his gifts are great. I'm so thankful of his graciousness. He has given me peace, and he's given me grace. He's given me hope. He's given me a secure future where I, I get to pass through judgment, and I get to overcome sin, and I get to transition past death. He's given me a lot. But you know who we ultimately boast in? Not the gifts, but the, the giver. We boast in God. And you know how we boast in God? We boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now some of you are saying, Pastor Jacob, seven sermons ago you said the Jews got in trouble because they said we boast in God. Because Jewish boasting is an exclusivity. Here's how the Jews boast. We got the law, we got circumcision, and we got God on lock. He's our God, he's not your God, and if you want God, you've got to come through Judaism. That's Jewish boasting, and it's not... It is not biblical. Judaism was given ultimately to be a lighthouse to the world in order to embrace the nations to God. Not to be some badge of exclusivity that says, me and no one else. 
But Christian boasting is not that. You know what Christian boasting is, if you really want to think about it? It's the humiliation of mankind to the exaltation of God. You know what Christian boasting really is. All of our praise songs should be to our humiliation and to his exaltation and to the graciousness that he gives us. You know, it's the stick. It's the stick. We've got to humiliate ourselves. We're wretched, sinners, ungodly enemies of God. But it's also the exaltation of God, yet he sent his son to die for us when we did not deserve it. He will justify you, he will redeem you, he will sanctify you, and he will glorify you. The exaltation of God and his graciousness through Lord Jesus Christ. As I end today, I, I think of hope kind of like I think of Maymay's bike. Um, Maymay had a bike, you put training wheels on it. Uh, Donita started this bike club and she got my family riding in her bike club, which meant... Even during the summer break when I'm not supposed to take kids to school, I then had to take them to Donita's every day. Thanks, Donita, for that one. And then after Donita's, they're already with Dad, so they might as well, what, stay with Dad, you know? And so, uh, luckily, Calvin and Adam are gracious. We had the kids around the office. But I would bring Maymay and Evelyn down and Dayton and Eli, and they would go on rides. And Maymay had a bike with her training wheels on it, and uh, her training wheels were not really dependable, folks. I'll be honest with you. I could tighten them all day long, but after about... 20 minutes, I knew one of them would come loose. Now, the way training wheels work is it forms a triangle with three stress points. Does that sound really good? Three stress points, all right? And if you lose one of those stress points, what happens? Yeah, down goes Maymay, okay? I knew I wasn't going on the ride, so I'm like, we'll try it, all right? Never tell Maymay this. We'll try this, all right? Maybe her training wheels will hold up, maybe they won't. Well, I get a text message 30 minutes into the ride, and what's happened to Maymay? Down went Maymay, all right? She wasn't hurt, but her training wheels failed. When I think of Christian hope that Paul taught in chapter 5, it has three, three pressure points. Is God changing your life now? Do you see him in your life? Have you ever emotionally experienced the love of God? Do you have that confirmation that God said he loves you? And do you understand what he's done for you? See, you can understand what God's done for you all day. You know what we call that? People who only have the head knowledge of God. They are cold and calculated, logical unbelievers. Because you know what they're missing? The love of God in their life and the change and the evidence he's there. Or you also have those people who have the most mountaintop experiences. They're the loudest singers. They're always putting God on their Facebook. They may even have a tattoo on the back of their bicep. And they got three bumper stickers on their car. They love God with all their emotions. Do you know what they're missing? Their character hasn't been a change a day in their life. And they don't even understand and comprehend the gospel and what he did for them. And it's like those three points. They may got one going real well. They emotionally love God. The lights are off. We're singing to the top of our lungs. We go to every Chris Tomlin concert. But in the end, they're going to fall as unbelievers. Then you got those that have all the head knowledge and the emotions. They're rock stars in Baptist churches. They know the answers. They sing on Sundays. They seem to really love the church. But you know what they're missing? Once again, God hasn't changed them a day in their life. And if we could pull the curtain back on their life, if we could live with them Monday through Sunday, if we knew the depths of them, we would question whether God was really working. Because you can have all the answers in the world, and you can have all the emotions in the world, but folks, if, if, if Jesus Christ is not your Lord, if he is not your master, and he is not changing your desires, I question whether he's in your life.
Now, I understand you could overread all those things. Man, Pastor, you're being crazy. But it's three. You got to feel that love. And I can't describe what that is, but the Spirit, you just have this, I, I know God loves me. And you have this, this history of God changing you, and you see him in your life, and he's working in your life, and there's bearing fruit in your life. And then you also have this knowledge that is growing where you never knew what the word justification meant 20 years ago, but now you do. And you put those all three together. You know what they equal? A non-disappointing hope in God. God is going to be there in the end because he's with me today. God's going to be there in the end for me because he's changing me today. God's going to be there in the end because he loves me today. So that's my call to you today. Where's your hope in God? Do you, do you understand what he did for you? We would do a disservice to you thinking I can emotionally woo you into the kingdom. Do you understand what God did for you? Do you have the Holy Spirit in you saying, Abba, Father, Father, Child? And do you have that fruit? Because if he's going to change you to glory, he's going to change you now. So as we end today, that's where I leave you. Just think of that three pressure points or think of a stool maybe this would be a little easier visual but it's four not three a stool has four points it could also have three if you remove a leg of a stool is it going to work no all three of these work together to form the strongest hope ever offered in the world a hope that is in god let me pray heavenly father what a joy